Grab your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Can you believe that it is 2023? Man, I thought for sure that we would have hoverboards by now, like the kind that actually hover over the ground. Instead, we have meatless hamburgers, and we have a robot that takes your order at McDonald's. Have you guys experienced that? They've apparently employed Siri and Alexa at McDonald's, it's, it's a strange time we live in. But, you know, one of the best things about starting a new year is the opportunity and the motivation that people feel to change. We make New Year's resolutions and we plan to do things differently. We attempt to start new habits like exercising or eating healthier or spending less time on social media or going to bed earlier. So there's always this, this spirit of hope for change that comes along with a new year. But we know that, sadly, those resolutions typically don't last very long. Sometimes they stick, but oftentimes they make it a few weeks and crash and burn in a pile of empty crumble cookie boxes. I may or may not be talking about myself. But then next year comes around and we start the whole process all over again with that new hope. So in light of a new year, over the next five weeks, I want to share with you some habits that will actually change your life. In fact, I am dead serious when I say that learning to consistently practice these five things would make 2023 the best year of your life. No, they may not bring you a promotion at work or success in the stock market or a thinner waistline, but these are habits that will change you spiritually and will then move out to every other part of your life. In fact, I believe that they will have a greater impact on you than anything else you do this year. That's because these habits come from a book written by God. The Bible is God's word, written to us and for us. And in this book, he's given us everything we need to know him and love him and live a life that matters. So back in 2009, Blue Valley took five habits from the Bible and summed them up with five action words that start with the letter S. If you've been at Blue Valley for some time, you know these as the five S habits. They are surrender, sustain, sacrifice, shine, and share. And the point of these habits is to simply sum up what it looks like for someone to follow Jesus. We believe these five things are the key to the Christian life. And if you practice these five things, then you will experience the eternally impactful and purposeful life that Jesus has called you to. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take each one of these 5S habits over the next five weeks. And first and most importantly, we're going to ask, where do we find them in God's word? Then we're going to take them and apply them to our daily lives, especially as we think about this brand new year. Because as we sit here eight days into 2023, I believe we have an opportunity to make this a year of growing in Christ like we never have before. A year of impacting our community like we never have before. I believe that. That by God's grace, we can live a 5S here. So let's today focus on our first habit, which is really the root of all the other ones. It's the starting point. It's the habit of surrender. So let's go to our passage of Scripture. Let's see what God says and find out what surrender really means. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to read for you verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. These verses, man, they're some of the richest in the whole Bible. They are jam-packed with gospel goodness to give us a full picture of what it means to be saved by Jesus. In fact, one of the more amazing facts about this passage is that in the original language of the Bible, this, these verses from 3 to 14 were one big, long sentence. This comes from God through the Apostle Paul to a church in a place called Ephesus. And this is the opening of Paul's letter to this church. This is what he starts with because he wants them to see the beauty of what God has done for them in Jesus. And there's so much we could say about these verses, but let me just share with you three things we learn here about what it means to surrender. Here's the first. Number one, surrender is based on a past decree. First verses of this passage dive into one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. They concern God's plan of salvation from eternity past. One of the things we know from the Bible is that God is sovereign, meaning he is not a God sitting back watching things just unfold, but rather he is a God who's in control. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, in all places, at all times, and eternal. And with those attributes in mind, one of the things the Bible makes clear is that God did not leave our salvation to chance, but he had a plan to save us. The plan was that God the Father would send God the Son to the earth to die for the sins of man, and that God the Holy Spirit would apply that salvation to all, to everyone who believes. But here's the question. When did God enact that plan? Look again at verses 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul tells us that God's great plan of salvation was put into action when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before the world was ever created, before time had even begun, God put into motion a plan to save his people. Before you and I had taken a single breath, God was thinking of us and planning to pursue us. Now, you may remember from our study through the book of Romans that this language of God choosing us has been giving Christians a bit of heartburn for the last 2,000 years. 
And we see another word that refers to that. This language, again, in verse 5, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That word predestined, it simply means to appoint or ordain beforehand. So, while we do choose to turn from our sins and believe in Jesus, it's also true that God chose to save us. Predestination is the teaching of the Bible. Rather, what Christians debate is the how, the who, and the why. Pretty much everything else. (laughs) This is an area where good Christian brothers and sisters disagree. So I would encourage you to study this for yourself. Come to your own convictions on this mystery. And most importantly, whatever you believe on this difficult doctrine, hold it with humility. Because Paul's point here is not to cause debate or to confuse us. Instead, his point is to communicate something that all of us can agree with. It's this, salvation begins and ends with God. God is not a procrastinator. He didn't wait till we messed things up so bad that he had to swoop in and save the day. No, he's always loved us and planned to save us. And God is not standing outside of the burning building while we're trapped inside hoping we can make it out alive. No, God ran into the building, drug our lifeless bodies out, and resuscitated us back to life. Salvation begins and ends with God. It is based on an unchangeable past decree. And this is so important for three reasons. First, it's important because if salvation did not begin and end with God, grace would not be grace. That word grace, it means God's unmerited favor towards us. And the key is that word, unmerited. The entire premise of grace is that we don't deserve it. Doesn't matter how good of a person we may think we are, how many spiritual or moral things we might do, none of us can earn salvation. Our relationship with God is due entirely to the free gift of His grace because it begins and ends with Him. Second reason it's important to believe salvation begins and ends with God is because it's the key to our assurance. Listen, if being a Christian was up to me or to my good deeds, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I know I can never be good enough for God. And if staying a Christian and keeping my salvation until the day I die was up to me, again, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I would have lost my salvation a long time ago. I would have no peace. I'd be constantly wondering if I was going to make it. I'd be praying that sinner's prayer every night. But knowing that this whole thing started in eternity past with the sovereign plan of God gives me great assurance because I know what God started He will finish. He will hold me and keep me no matter what comes because salvation is based on a past decree. The third reason it's important to know that salvation begins and ends with God is because it gives him glory. If surrender was all about me and what I did, then I would have a reason to boast. I could get to heaven and stand before God and give a good argument on why he should let me in. But let me tell you, I got no argument. I got nothing to say for myself. Reminds me of a time a few years ago I got pulled over for speeding. You, you ever been pulled over before? Uh, don't lie. Don't lie. Come on. Now's not the time. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah, pastors get pulled over sometimes too. We speed sometimes. And I knew when I got pulled over, man, I knew I couldn't lie. Like I had no excuses. I was totally caught red-handed. The speedometer, don't lie. And all I could say in the moment <clears throat> to the police officer was, I am sorry. Please don't give me a ticket. <laughs> 
Look, when it comes to our salvation, when we stand before God in heaven, there is nothing we can say except, I trust in Jesus. And that's it. Like, I've got nothing else. Jesus did the saving, and he gets all the glory. That's what we see in verse 6. We see this phrase, it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. Friends, if salvation is based on a past decree, then grace is grace. We can have assurance, and God gets the glory. That's the first thing we need to understand about surrender. Here's the second, number two. Surrender is grounded in an historical event. We've established that our salvation began with God. It's all a part of his sovereign plan from eternity past. But God chose to play out that plan at a particular time and a particular place. 2,000 years ago through the person and life of a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 7. It says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Uh, Paul uses that phrase over and over in this passage. He says, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in him. He wants us to see that all of this is taking place through Jesus. He says we have redemption through his blood. He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. When Jesus died, that's when he accomplished our redemption. He took the punishment for our sins that we deserved in our place. He paid our debt, a debt we can never repay. And as a result, we have forgiveness of our trespasses, all of them. What Jesus did in living a perfect life, dying on the cross and rising from the dead, is what makes our salvation possible. It's the very reason our surrender to him gives us eternal life. It's all grounded in what Jesus did in the first century A.D. So that means when we surrender, we surrender to Jesus. And this is important because there are some people out there who get this a little twisted. And they attempt to find the basis of their salvation in something else. Some try and base their salvation on a religious act like baptism or growing up in church. They think they're saved because they did the right thing. They were dunked as a kid or sprinkled as an infant or walked the aisle or prayed the prayer. They went to VBS or camp or on a mission trip or Sunday school. So they surrender to a religious act which will not save anyone. Others try and ground their salvation in their head knowledge. They think they're saved because they know a lot about the Bible or they know the facts about Jesus or they agree with those facts in their mind. So they surrender to their own spiritual knowledge which will not save anyone. Others try and ground their salvation in their own morality. They think they will be saved because they're a good person. At least they're better than most people. They work hard and raise their kids the right way. They haven't committed any of the big sins. So they surrender to their good works, which will not save anyone. And others try and ground their salvation in their membership to a church, a denomination, or group. They think they're a true Christian because they're members of a church or belong to a particular denomination or went to a campus ministry in college. So they surrender to a club or group or institution, which will not save anyone. What Paul tells us here and what the Bible unequivocally affirms and what I want to say today without any hint of confusion is this. There is no other way to be saved than Jesus. There's no other path to heaven. There's no other purpose to life. There's no other hope for any of us than to be radically saved by the grace of Jesus. 
He's the only way, and it's to him and him alone that we surrender. Acts 4.12 says, And there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When we are saved, and when we surrender our lives, and when we become believers, we surrender to Jesus alone and what he did. Our surrender is grounded in a historical event. Here's the third and last point we learn here about surrender. Number three, surrender is experienced through a present confession. Even though our salvation begins and ends with God, he sovereignly planned it from eternity past. And even though it's grounded in an historical event, Jesus accomplished everything on the cross 2,000 years ago. We still must confess Jesus in the present to be saved by Jesus. Paul wrote this letter of Ephesians to Christians, to believers, and here's how he described their decision to trust in Christ. Look again at verses 13 and 14. He said, In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, God designed his plan in this way. That when we hear the word of truth, which he calls the gospel, that's the good news that Jesus saves. When we hear that, we have to respond. And we can choose on one hand to believe and trust in Jesus. And when we respond in that way, he says we're saved, we're still with the Holy Spirit. We have an inheritance, which means we'll be with Jesus forever in heaven. Or we can reject Jesus, reject the gospel. And spend forever separated from him in hell. That's the choice all of us have when we hear this message. That means you, listen to me. That means you, no matter who you are. No matter what you've done. No matter how much or how little you know. No matter what's been done to you. How hard your life's been. You have the opportunity today to place your trust in Jesus. And be saved by him forever. What does that look like? How does that work? I mean, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? Is it just mental knowledge? Like I just say, yeah, I, I believe that to be true. No, we've already said that won't work. Think about it like this. I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I believe that fact in my mind to be true, but I don't believe in George Washington for my salvation. So there's something more to believing than just having the right mental head knowledge. And this is the reason... I love the word surrender. Surrender. I think it's a great picture of what it means to be saved. To surrender means simply to give up. It's to give up everything else and trust in Jesus alone. It's to say there's nothing else for me. I have nothing else. I want nothing else. I give my whole life to Jesus. I surrender to him. But here's the hard part. That is a very unnatural thing for us to do. First off, it's unnatural culturally. In the culture we live in, to give up, to quit is bad. It's a negative thing. Like in sports, you never surrender. You don't want to lose. Or in a battle, you don't give up. You don't stop fighting. The American spirit is to always keep going, keep pushing, no matter what. So the whole idea of saying, you know what, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I need help. That's a hard step for some. 
But surrender is also unnatural because of our sin nature that all of us are born with. Three weeks ago, we had our third baby. And I so appreciate, I want to tell you how much I appreciate all your prayers and diapers and encouragement. It's so, so helpful. Amber and our baby Calvin are both doing great. But, you know, it's interesting to me that all of our kids are unique. Even from a really early age, you can just see there's different things they like or don't like. They have little different personalities that come out. They're each their own little person. But there is one thing they all have in common. They are each adorably stubborn. They are. It's because they've been born with a sin nature. So when they do not get their way, guess what? You will know it. (laughs) They will fight you and throw a fit with the best of them. As much as I love them, they, for some reason, often refuse to surrender to my parental authority. A lot of times we get in a little bit of a standoff. For example, it's time for bed and my son needs to pick up his Legos because everyone knows there is no greater pain than stepping on a Lego. So I tell him to pick up his Legos and he looks at me and says, no. I say, what'd you say? (laughs) He says, no. And then we're just standing there staring at each other in the eyes, you know, like an old Western movie. Wah, wah, wah. And I have to decide, is this the moment where I'm going to assert my dominance? Will I issue a threat? Will I make a peace offering? Will I bribe? (laughs) And sometimes he just flat refuses to back down and surrender. Now, you may be wondering about the sweet, precious newborn. People often say that newborn babies, oh, he's just perfect. He's perfect. And you might think that until you have to change his diaper in the middle of the night. You see, when a newborn cries in the middle of the night, they only want one thing, and that is food. My son does not realize that my wife has issued an order that I change his diaper before he gets said food. And so he fights me, wailing and flailing, refusing to surrender to my excellent diaper-changing skills. See, the kids, they're stubborn from the womb. But I don't think that's just a problem with kids, is it? That's not something we grow out of with age, is it? We are stubborn, sinful people who want our way. All of us struggle to surrender because we have a sin nature. It's unnatural. And yet, this is the only way to salvation. Now, listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus described following him as surrender. He said, take up your cross, deny yourself, lose your life for my sake. That's what he said it looks like to really believe. It's to trust in Jesus to save you by giving your life to him. And here's the deal. Surrender is not a one-time thing. Yes, there's a moment where you first surrender to Jesus. We call that conversion or getting saved. In that moment, God saves you. He changes you. He fills you with the Holy Spirit. Your name is written in his book, and you'll spend forever with him in heaven. But you don't stop surrendering after that moment. You don't get saved and get on. Salvation is an ongoing process where you continue to follow Jesus and continue to live on mission with him and continue to grow more like him. Surrender is a way of life for the Christian. Every day. We choose to keep surrendering to Jesus, to keep trusting in him. And as we do, we learn to trust him more, love him more, and experience more of his grace. This is why I love the way we as a church define the surrender habit. 
uh, with each of our five S habits, we have what we call a declaration statement. It kind of fleshes it out and defines it for us. Here's the one for surrender. It says this. It says, I will daily submit to Jesus as my king. I will daily submit to Jesus as my king. That's the declaration, and it's a commitment. Notice it says, I will. I will. I'm agreeing to do something. What am I agreeing to do? I'm agreeing to submit, to say it's not my will but his. It's not my plan but his. It's not my life but his. And who am I submitting to? To Jesus, the one who lived, died, and rose again for me, the one who accomplished salvation on my behalf. I choose to give him everything to follow him until the day I die. And I'm submitting to Jesus as my king. That means he's in charge. I live by what he says. He defines the standard of my life. I seek to honor him, not people, not the world, not myself even. I follow his commands, his way, no matter the cost, no matter what it takes, no matter what life brings. That's the surrender habit. Why don't you say that after me this morning? Say, I will daily submit to Jesus as my king. We saw it in Scripture. We've heard the declaration. Now let's put some handles on it. Each week, of, each week of this series, as I conclude, I want to give you one simple, practical way you can put this habit into practice in 2023. So how can we live out surrender, each of us, this year? Well, the difficult thing is that surrender is something that happens on the inside in your heart. And sure, we could look at different parts of your life and determine if you're surrendering to Jesus. For example, we could look at your finances and see if you're surrendering your money to Jesus. We could look at your calendar and see if you're surrendering your time to Jesus. But I ask myself the question I kind of wrestle with, you know, what is something that we could do physically, practically to help us remember this habit and surrender each day? I want to propose something that may be a bit different or unique for some of you. Might even be a little uncomfortable if you didn't grow up in church or depending on what tradition you grew up in. But one way that I believe we can work on living out this habit of surrender is to spend time regularly this year praying on our knees. Now, why would anybody do that? Why why would you do that? Well, We know, of course, you don't have to assume a certain posture when you pray. I remember as a kid, I couldn't believe it when I finally learned you don't have to close your eyes and bow your head to pray. But you should listen to your parents if they ask you to do that. God hears us whether we pray while standing, walking, sitting, even driving, though you definitely shouldn't close your eyes in that scenario. So praying on your knees is not some magical thing that gets you better answers to your prayers. And we know that what God cares about most is your heart. Jesus critiqued people who faked it, who looked spiritual on the outside but were dead on the inside. So this is not about looking holy or trying to be, act like a better Christian. Here's what I found when it comes to praying on your knees. Number one, it's biblical. The Bible tells us there's many different things we can do with our bodies to worship God physically. Singing, playing instruments, shouting, raising your hands, even clapping. Did y'all hear that? Clapping, yes, that's <laughs> biblical. One of the ways we're called to worship God is by kneeling. Psalm 95, 6 says this. It says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
In fact, the Hebrew word for worship literally means to bow down. Kneeling or bowing has always been a way to demonstrate honor and humility and surrender. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, he prayed bowing down. Several other times in the Bible, when people encounter the Lord, they fall on their faces. So kneeling is biblical, but I've also found that for me personally, adopting this physical posture helps my heart posture. You know, we are body and soul together. And what happens to our body can affect our soul, and what happens to our soul can affect our body. So when I kneel down before God in prayer physically, it helps guide my heart to do the same spiritually. Now, I understand some of you may not be able to pray on your knees, and that's okay. As I said, God's greatest concern is our heart. You are not more or less spiritual by doing this. But another posture of surrender you may be able to take is with your hands. Putting your hands out in front of you like this communicates a similar idea. Or if you're a little more charismatic like me, you might even raise your hands, right? It's a little scary. But let me just challenge you this year. This is your challenge for surrender. Spend some time regularly. When you have your time with the Lord and you go to pray, get out of the bed, get off your chair, surrender to Jesus as king in your heart, and then demonstrate that surrender with your body by kneeling before him or maybe just putting your hands out where you are and saying, Jesus, I daily submit to you as my king.